Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin unraveling science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Professor Maria McNamara, Professor of Paleontology in the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences at University College Cork is my guest on the podcast today. So Maria's research focuses on the preservation and paleobiology of exceptionally preserved fossils with particular interests in soft tissues and fossils and fossil colour. Maria has been the recipient of many grants and awards, including the prestigious ERC Consolidator Grant and was one of eight women featured in the Women on Walls campaign in partnership with the Royal Irish Academy. And so I suppose with all that in mind, Maria, uh, firstly, welcome to Unraveling Science and thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. I'm delighted to be here, Megan. So I suppose, um, take me back to with what you were like when you were a child and where this kind of curiosity and interest in the natural world came from. Um, and, and was this always what you wanted to pursue later in life? Um, so I, I guess in response to the first part of your question, I was always a curious child. I would still consider myself a curious child. <laughs> um, uh, but did I know that I wanted to be a paleontologist? Not at all. I was... To be honest, I kind of liked most subjects in school. I wasn't a great fan of business studies and economics, so I dropped those early on. But I really liked, basically, I really liked languages, I really liked um, maths, I really liked learning about anything to do with the natural world. So, you know, geography, history, the na- you know, science, I loved all of those subjects. And, um, you know, I guess in terms of yeah, my kind of inquisitive streak, was kind of fostered by my parents and by my granny, my mother's mother. Um, she lived in the countryside and during our school holidays, we used to stay there and she used to hunt us out of the house and with nets. And she used to tell us, don't come back now till you find three different grasshoppers or three different types of pink flower. And we'd bring them in anyway, and we'd identify them. And she had all of the books to identify the various creepy crawlies and flowers and plants so she kind of from a very early age she kind of instilled this notion in us that actually the natural world is right out there you can discover it and we can learn about it so i suppose from an early age that kind of mindset was was clued into us and you know we used to do experiments and things like that and you know my mother had a telescope so we used to look at the stars and so always thinking about the natural world really and it just um i guess by the time it came to leaving cert i was pretty happy that i wanted to study earth sciences i knew i wanted to study something to do with the planet and um i was just really taken with this whole the force of nature and the power of nature and it, it the paleontology came from there i guess yeah, it's kind of lovely to think of you doing, I suppose, nearly ecology experiments when you were so young. And I suppose that highlights science is all around us and you don't need to actually be in a lab to 
discover or to learn about science. Exactly. The, you know, the natural sciences are right outside our doorstep. And you could argue that they are, you know, some of the most important sciences in terms of just helping people have a sense of pride in their local environment, even if it's just their back garden. You know, if people can can take an interest in what's out there and identify the weeds and actually come to learn that the weeds are actually important and they have a job too in terms of biodiversity. I think people, you know, simple science like that can give people an awful lot of pride and, you know, a sense of place, you know, and, and a belonging to the landscape. So yeah, I, I really believe that there's great power in just, I suppose, keeping your eyes open and observing the world around you. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, you're very passionate about uh, public engagement in science, which we'll kind of talk about a little later on in our conversation. But so when you were kind of in Leaving Cert, you were, you were thinking more along earth sciences. I did, I did my undergrad in Galway and uh, I, I went there to study earth science. I actually went in as general science, just I wanted to give myself as many options as possible. And um uh, I think midway through first year, I I I, re- I knew I wanted to do earth science. I loved the earth science lectures, um. But I had a little bike accident, and I missed the lectures in paleontology during first year. I just I missed several weeks of college, and um. Uh, so I really had no idea what paleontology was about, and then when we came back for second year, the first lecture on the first day was paleontology and I was just blown away and I knew straight away not everything else can just go away this is what I want to do it was great then kind of looking towards a PhD and that kind of thing was that always the plan getting nearer you know into fourth year or what did you what did you envisage I suppose you know when I look back it's in one level I suppose it was inevitable that I'd do a PhD because I just, I've always loved learning. I've always loved learning about, about the natural world. I've loved solving problems. I love thinking up ideas and trying to figure out ways of answering these questions. So in one level, I suppose it was just a natural progression. Um, I did have cold feet though. Mm. Um, I, I did throw a little wobbly before before taking on the PhD. So I went and I, I traveled around Europe with some friends for six months and I got all that out of my system. <laughs> and then I came back and I felt, yeah, I, I can do this now, you know. Um, and I guess part of me, you know, I, I didn't want to cultivate this notion of being an eternal student. I wanted to feel like I was actually doing something that could make a difference and that would make, would impact people's lives in some way. And so, you know, even after my PhD, uh, I left academia for a little while and I worked in public engagement, public communication um, of science because I wanted to feel, you know, that I could make it, I could survive in the real world if I had to. And I suppose that that was that was an important kind of step for me along the way. I think that is such a, an important point. And actually, for this season of the podcast, I kind of asked people on Twitter or, you know, listeners, what do you want to hear? What do you want to ask academics? And that was a key question. Was there ever a point where you left and was there ever a point where you left and you came back? So I suppose the first question is you've kind of answered that as why you, I suppose, left and, and went. To, and I, you're working in the burn. Am I right? In, in that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, I guess I, I didn't want to feel pigeonholed and I didn't want to feel like I was limiting myself in terms of what I was able to do. And I wanted to give my, myself the option of seeing what it's like to exist in the wider world outside of the university bubble, to see what it's like to work in a normal environment and to interact with everyday people, not students and other academics all the time. And, you know, by working in the Burren, um, I was the geopark geologist for the what was then the aspiring uh, Burren Cliffs of Moher Geopark. While I was there, we did a lot of work on the geopark application, set up walking trails, cycle trails, ge geological points of interest, did a lot of work with local uh, schools, teachers visitor centers even farmers that was actually some of my favorite work was working with the farmers and you know uh, producing little booklets for farmers for individual farmers saying this is these are the features you have on your land these are features that you can talk about to visitors um so it it was a fabulous year and it also it showed me that i could survive in in the kind of normal world i suppose in the bro broader world but i could hold down a steady job <laughs> um and uh it just taught me so much in terms of people and communicating with people and what matters the things that matter Pe people care people do care about the environment but they care about their jobs they care about their kids and and it was it was really an eye-opener in terms of really bringing me down to earth and you know trying to realize i suppose what geoscience what paleontology what rocks what the natural sciences can do for people mm -hmm. and it's really just about inspiring people to have a sense of wonder to have a sense of curiosity um because if you can hold on to that during your life you know you will always find joy outside you will always find some little insect or some some play of light on a on a drop of rain on a leaf you'll always be able to find joy in the natural world and that's free you know it doesn't cost anything and so i i during that year in the burn that was one of my i suppose more profound internal realizations just learning about myself how i communicate with people and learning about what people want and how you can actually just you know as a scientist one of the things you can do for the world is actually just to help people see what you see and to help just allow people to find that bit of joy themselves in the natural world so it was a fabulous year it was so valuable i wouldn't be where i am now if i hadn't taken that year out and it was just one year and a lot of people said to me don't leave you'll never get back yeah you know you'll miss too much you'll miss out you'll never get back in that was complete baloney uh you know yeah uh, and i and i think the lesson was that it doesn't matter what people say to you you know if you really want something you'll make it work yeah because i think a lot of people will that will resonate with a lot of people about you know don't leave if you're on this track don't leave because like you said you'll never come back i suppose that kind of leads me into a question as to why did you come back then how why did you make that jump back into academia i think that's so important for people to maybe understand. I came back because <laughs> I was still having ideas. So I was working in this new job, really enjoying the communication side of it, talking to all these different people, applying my knowledge to a completely different, you know, uh, problem and project. 
but I was still dreaming up research ideas. I was still waking up in the morning thinking, oh wow, we could look at this, we could look at that. And eventually I just literally, I woke up one morning with, with, a, with a research project in my head. And I thought to myself, wow, I could do this thing that nobody's ever done. Um, and I decided to give myself the option. I, I applied for a Marie Curie fellowship and I said to myself, do you know, they're really competitive. I probably won't get it, but at least I've given myself the chance. And um, I got the money. So hence there was much soul searching. Do I stay or do I go? And, you know, in the end, uh, you know, myself and my husband decided, look, we'll do it. It involved a move to the States. So it wasn't trivial. Mm. It wasn't just heading back up the road to Galway. So, you know, it was a major international move. But I'm so glad I did it. Yeah, so glad and so so lucky, actually. Um, talk to me about that move to the States. And I know then you moved then to Bristol and then finally back to Cork. So during those moves did you always want to come back to Ireland or was there ever a time where you thought you would stay abroad I, I realized during during my time in the states especially that I love Ireland <laughs> <laughs> I love the land you know the the countryside the green fields the smell of the air the clean air the birds I just I, I missed it and you know don't get me wrong when we were when we lived in the states we had brilliant crack. We had great friends. We got up to all kinds of shenanigans. <laughs> um, you know, had great fun in the lab, had a fabulous mentor, the number one guy in my field in the world. So the work set up was just second to none. We had great friends, a great social life, but I missed the land. It sounds really naff, but like I, I just missed the green fields and, you know, little things like that. I wasn't a big milk drinker at all before going to the states in the states the milk just didn't taste the same <laughs> and and i used to dream about my when when we used to come back to ireland and we'd land in dublin i'd go to the little shop in dublin airport and get the little pint of, you know the builder's pint of milk yeah and glug, 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 <laughs> just to taste the grass in the milk so yeah you know i did i did miss it but we were very happy over there and as i said the work life was amazing um, but I did wonder, we got, we did get to the point where we were wondering, gosh, will we stay over here? You know, my first, my, my first child was born over in the States. We were quite settled. And then I guess an opportunity came, a postdoc came up in Bristol and I thought to work with, again, a really, really good paleontologist, somebody who I knew quite well. And I thought, wow, this would be a really great environment to work on slightly different um, problems. Uh, too good to pass up and uh, so we said look it's not Ireland but it's close mm. and we'll give it a shot and yeah so you know ended up in Bristol and had a very had a very happy uh, year there before moving eventually to Cork which is where you're you're based now um, I suppose this might be a good point in our conversation to bring in you know the the whole area of of paleontology and I why do we want to study this why do you love paleontology so I guess yeah uh, you know if a very simple Venn diagram would be rocks life and paleontology is at the intersection uh, because you know fossils are traces of ancient life um, in terms of the particular fields that I work in so I work on fossils that still have traces of their soft juicy parts so things like skin muscles 
feathers, hair, things, things like that. And um, I suppose when we study this kind of area, I always say to people, I'm one third geologist, one third uh, biologist, one third chemist, and a little bit of a physicist and an environmental scientist. You know, it, it's really transdisciplinary what, what we do because we've got to understand. I spend an awful lot of my time working on modern animals. So everything from squid and fish and tunicates right up the tree to birds and mammals, even insects. Um, so spend a lot of my time working on modern animals and an awful lot of time, you know, looking at rocks and then trying to understand how these how you take a living tissue and how do you fossilize it so that we can understand the kinds of chemical signals and that, that we get from the rock record. So that's my kind of concept of what paleontology is, very interdisciplinary. I, that was the first part of your question, but then, so I think, I think the second part of your question was, why do I like paleontology and why have I chosen this as my career path? Um, I guess I am fascinated by life. I love the natural world and I have always been interested in history and old things and you can't get much older than things that are millions and hundreds of millions of years old and I suppose you know the fossil record is like is like a crime scene you know you've just got a few clues and you're trying to piece together what did it, what did this animal look like what were its tissues made of? Why was it using these chemicals in its body in this kind of environment? So it's it's a real kind of puzzle. And I suppose it's a challenge. And uh, it's so satisfying when you, you know, we can use really modern techniques nowadays to study fossils. A lot of people think of fossils and they think of Ross from Friends studying yeah. bones. But actually the kind of paleo that we do, it's it's, you know, we're using uh, particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider. We use X-rays. We use all kinds of um, electron beam techniques and, and, you know, vibrational spectroscopy techniques. So we use, you know, cutting edge techniques to study fossils and extract biological information from them. Um, so it really feels like it's a very quantitative science. So I love the, the hard science aspect of it as well. So I suppose it speaks to me on multiple fronts, my love of life, my love of old things. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that it's a hard science, you know, we can we can do nice quantitative science here using some very cool scientific toys. Yeah. And I suppose kind of what you were saying there about people's general perception of uh, paleontology and the Ross from Friends image, maybe naively. I kind of thought that, you know, studying fossils is bones and stuff like that. So it's very interesting that you study kind of the soft tissues, even feathers, which I think is so interesting as well. And I know you've kind of made discoveries in the feathers of, of ancient dinosaurs. Um, I suppose what does that tell us about kind of how these uh, dinosaurs lived on the planet? Well, I mean, in terms of the function of the feathers, you know, there's an ongoing debate, which we haven't solved yet, about, you know, why did feathers evolve? What did they do? You know, what did they do that gave animals an advantage? And I suppose, uh, you know, up until the 1990s, we were looking at birds to try and answer this question. And then there was a rake of discoveries of feathered dinosaurs from China, which showed us that actually, you know, feathers evolved a lot earlier. They evolved in um, bird-like dinosaurs. And I guess over the last 
seven or eight years, my research with collaborators around the world, we've shown that feathers evolved in, we found, first of all, we found, we found feathers in very basal dinosaurs, branched uh, or, you know, complex feathers in very basal dinosaurs, which suggested that, that all dinosaurs probably had the capacity to grow feathers that it wasn't just restricted to the very bird-like dinosaurs. And then a couple of years ago, we made an even bigger discovery that um, feathers didn't evolve in dinosaurs at all. They, they probably evolved uh, much, much earlier. And we know this because we found complex feathers in pterosaurs. And pterosaurs, they're these large, flying reptiles that a lot of people will have seen in films like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. But they're not actually dinosaurs. They're a completely separate group of reptiles. And so if you have feathers in pterosaurs and in dinosaurs, you know, the, the most likely explanation is that feathers actually evolved in their common ancestor. So in terms of when did feathers evolve, we're looking at the Triassic, you know, very, very early on. That's actually really interesting because in the early Triassic, we have life on our planet is recovering from the biggest mass extinction of all time, you know, where life almost died. 99% of species went extinct. And to think that feathers evolved during this window is actually really interesting because it suggests that actually, if feathers are that long lived, they probably conferred some kind of advantage. Mm. And when we look at the pterosaurs with feathers, and when we look at the basal dinosaurs with feathers, we see that they're pretty much over the whole body. And that's actually interesting because that kind of distribution around the whole body and the fact that they're so short, I mean, they're not, they're not feathers that can generate lift. You know, these things weren't flapping around using their tiny little feathers. <laughs> they were almost certainly used just to conserve body heat. Okay. You know, they were used for regulating body temperature. So we suspect that actually insulation was probably the, the first function of feathers. And then only later on did feathers start to be used for producing colors. And then you're into visual signaling and patterning and things like that. Now we might be wrong. There's always new fossils coming along. We might be working on interesting material that can contribute to that question. So I guess watch this space because this is so new and so fresh, you know, every new fossil is you know, can, can actually contribute to this story. We're still working it out, but it's, it's, it's a lot has changed in the last seven or eight years, actually. Of our understanding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, basically feathers evolved 70 million years earlier than we, than yeah. we thought, long before dinosaurs. So, you know, we think of birds and we think, oh, feathers, they're unique to birds, but actually there were various, two, at least two other groups of creature which had them long before birds came along and another thing you kind of mentioned there was color and i know you're really interested in i suppose how um insects and and, and other animals use color in communication uh, so maybe talk to me a little bit about that well i mean you know as soon as you have eyes that can see uh you're going to have uh you know that's going to be used in competition it's going to be used for natural selection so you know predators trying to track their prey prey trying to avoid predators and it'll be used for sexual selections trying to attract mates advertising fitness how healthy you are you know because of your very bright colors or very striking patterning and i guess for a long time 
Mm. You know, it, it's such an important part of, of animal physiology and animal behavior today. But for so long, we never thought that we'd find evidence of that in the rock record. And, you know, there were little hints here and there. Every now and then, you know, uh, somebody would find, a, let's say, some type of a shelly fossil with some maybe color stripes on it. But nobody had ever really looked at fossil color in, in any detail. And that was actually this, the topic that I chose to work on for my uh, Marie Curie fellowship when I was working at Yale in the States. So I decided to look at structural color. So um, when lots of us think of colors things, we think of, I don't know, carrots and tomatoes, everyday grass, everyday things that are colored using pigments, which are just chemicals that absorb light. But you can also make color in a completely different way that doesn't involve chemicals at all. And um, that uses instead tiny, tiny little ordered structures. And we call these photonic crystals so they're, because they're so regularly organized. They're actually crystalline in nature. And um, it turns out that, uh, you know, these things, they're not that, uh, I suppose, exotic. If you think of the rainbow colors on the back of a CD, that's produced by a, a photonic crystal. That's a structural color. If you think of the lovely kind of swirling colors in a soap bubble, if you're blowing bubbles or mm. doing the washing up, you know, those colors that you see on the bubbles, those are also structural colors. And it turns out lots of insects make uh, their colors using these kinds of methods, using very ordered arrays of little tissue nanostructures in their outer shell. And um, for a while I had been aware of some fossil insects that, you know, they had really bright colors that looked like structural colors, but nobody had looked at it in, in detail. So I said, right, let's actually test this. Let's see if they're structural. Let's see if we can find evidence for these very complex tissue structures. Um, let's see if we can understand how, why they fossilize. And let's see if, you know, if the colors that the fossils are now are the colors that they were when they were alive. Long story short, we proved they were structural. We did some experiments to show how they can fossilize. Um, and we found out that the colors that these fossils are now, they're not the colors that the insects had when they were crawling around millions of years ago. The colors actually changed during fossilization. They, they, they typically get blue shifted. So, it's, you know, when you think of the universe expanding and we talk about the light from faraway stars getting red shifted, it's actually the opposite is going on with these fossils. They get blue shifted over time because due to the effects of heat and pressure and getting squashed in the Earth's crust. So that was all, you know, really interesting. And, you know, we've since figured out some other groups have worked on structural colors in some feathers, in some fossil birds and feathered dinosaurs. So we know some feathered dinosaurs had nice metallic sheen on their feathers, like the lovely kind of bluey green sheen that you might see on the feathers of a magpie or a starling, that lovely iridescence. So some fossils had, you know, a sheen like that. And we may even have some evidence now for some other types of structural colors and fossil feathers, but I think it needs a little bit more work. So we, we're slowly starting to, I suppose, you know, get a sense of what colors ancient animals had. And then you can start to think about, well, what were they using the colors for? What were they saying to each other? Because color is expensive. You know, it, it costs, there is a physiological cost to making these colors. So it's got to, you know, it's got to have some function. There's got to be some, you know, trade-off. You've got to get something out of it. So it's it's very interesting to think about 
these kinds of evolutionary trade-offs and to think about, I suppose, just the evolution of different behaviours, camouflage, predator avoidance, warning signals, these kinds of things. Very, very interesting to look at evidence for those behaviours in ancient creatures. Yeah, I suppose it's nearly like reconstructing the past in a way. In, in your research, what you're trying to do is visualise what these creatures were like uh, in, in ancient times. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, you know, I was never really motivated by the desire to, to know what exactly they looked like. I was more interested in the kind of the communication side of things and the evolution of behaviour. Um, and And I suppose figuring out what the colour was, was a means to an end. But actually, over the last five years, kind of what I'm really interested in has evolved away from that even further. Um, and I suppose I've become more focused on the pigment melanin in particular, because um, we, when I started five, five or six years ago, when I started my first ERC, uh, we thought at that point that all melanin in our body, pretty much all melanin, was in our skin, in our hair, in our integument. But then over the course of the research, we realized, hang on here, there's actually melanin in your heart, in your lungs, your liver, your spleen, your kidneys, your reproductive organs, your connective tissues, it's everywhere. And so we spent a lot of time characterizing these internal melanins, just trying to work out, you know, what's their chemistry? Um, what are they? What are they doing in there? You know, and uh, we looked at amphibians and reptiles and birds and mammals and fish and squid, and we're finding them everywhere. What was really interesting was that in the different organs, the melanin is associated with different metals, and this was really bizarre. Like we've known for a long time that you know melanin is like a sponge for metals; it really readily absorbs metals, but we didn't, I had no idea that the melanin in different organs had this very unique signal. So it meant, of course, that once we figured out what metals are in which uh, organs, we were able to go back to the fossils and actually map their metal chemistry from the, mel from the melanin and say, oh, look, there's the heart, there's the liver, this is connective tissue. Uh, so that's, that was very interesting. And, you know, we did a lot of experiments and a lot of work on, on a lot of many different fossils from many different fossil localities to try and understand how this metal chemistry might get, might change because of the fossilization process. And we're still working on this problem of what is the melanin doing in there? Mm. And, you know, looking in a, in a bit more detail about the type of melanin that's in there. And I suppose that's, that's going to be the focus of my research over the next five, five or six years. But you know, this, this isn't something that is just very, I suppose, abstract and has to do with very ancient animals. You know, we're solving problems about modern animals right now and about their physiology. And it even has applications to human health and there might be applications here for cancer research in terms of, you know, links between metals and melanin, mm. different cancers, including melanoma. So the, the, those are some other kind of, I suppose, side questions that we're also working on and that might we hope might turn out actually to be very, very interesting and important. Yeah, that's a lovely idea that, you know, the natural world and what we can learn from, I suppose, studying fossils in the ancient world 
can then infer answers to questions in human species happening right now. So I think that's really interesting because I, I was on your website and I saw that you were talking about the potential link with, with uh, melanoma and cancer. So it's very, I'd be very interested to hear how that goes. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And if there's one thing that it shows, it, it shows the value of blue sky science. You know, in our research, we made this discovery about melanin, the link between melanin and metal chemistry, you know, and and you know, we've, we're using approaches that aren't necessarily used very often in, I, I, in medicine, for instance. But, you know, we've, we've, got a, we've got techniques and we've got methods that we can use to actually approach these kinds of problems in human health. So if, it, if this shows anything, it's, you know, it, it validates blue sky science and it, it validates this whole premise that you know, blue sky science that is not directly applied to the economy or to a major um, economic or socioeconomic issue. It does have payback and it does have benefits down the line. Um, and, you know, the, the, by allowing the creativity of blue sky science, you know, you will make developments and science will advance that can have impacts that you can't predict at the start. Mm. So, you know, I, it's, it's hopefully, I'm hoping this project is going to be a bit of a poster child for blue sky science. You know, very excited to work on some of these aspects as well. We're also looking at metals in soil and trying to understand, you know, metal contamination in, in soils and how that might impact human health, especially in urban environments and how we might be able to fix that using melanin actually so there's you know very diverse impacts of this research and very different ways that we're that we're planning on taking it yeah absolutely and i think that idea of you know uh, championing blue skies research is so important um i suppose i wanted to also talk about you know the project your ireland's fossil heritage talk to me about that project setting that up and i suppose how that will run um, and the benefits for children and adults and learning about ireland's kind of ancient past sure so i guess this project look i i've always been involved in public engagement of science i think it's really important for scientists and i think it's you know we i, I feel that we have a you know there, there's there's a duty to actually communicate some of the some of our science back to the public and to inform the public about what we're doing and also to get the public interested and like i said earlier to to you know find that little bit of joy in the natural world and in science more broadly but i realized when i came back to ireland that i, I suppose by comparison with the states and with the uk where fossils and paleontology are much, they are a much bigger part of public life. There's a much longer tradition of studying fossils. And I really saw how that's just missing in Ireland. Geology, it's not a standalone subject in secondary school. There's very little mention of paleontology in the school curriculum. Rocks are something that we use in Ireland to build walls, not <laughs> to look, not to crack open in turn to, to see what you might find inside. So, and, and I, I think that that actually, it's a lost opportunity for us to actually get people, you know, I suppose, give them pride in their local community, in their local area, a sense of pride in Ireland and what Ireland has to offer. You know, it's part of our natural heritage, which most people just aren't aware of. You're, we're missing a trick because everybody loves fossils. You know, everybody's interested in, in fossils because they're, because of their, I suppose, their enigmatic 
preservation and what did they look like and how long ago did they live it just opens your mind to possibilities that you wouldn't normally have in your everyday life so uh, a few years ago myself and a colleague dr chris rogers who was then a postdoc of mine we set up a pilot project which was funded by science foundation ireland and it ran for a year and we basically set up an interactive exhibit full of hands-on activities and things for kids and adults to do around this notion of exploring Irish fossils. So basically we developed a series of games um, and puzzles that kids could do at our stand at the science fairs that we were going to, the, the Monster Science Fair, BT Young Scientist Science Week. And also then we adapted the activities for use in the classroom and we expanded upon them and linked them into the curriculum. And, you know, we could show teachers, you know, the things that we do in these activities, they, they link into what kids need to know about the skills they need to develop, about spatial skills, about counting skills, about, um, you know, plotting scientific investigation, planning experiments. So, you know, the, the, the activities actually really help the kids to develop lots of their, their scientific know-how. Mm -hmm. And um, it went really well and we had great feedback from teachers and from kids. So we uh, reapplied to Science Foundation Ireland for more money and to be able to roll it out nationally because the pilot was only in a, a, few, a handful of schools. So um, we were delighted to find out we got the money. Uh, we've hired full-time outreach officer, Dr. Jess Franklin, and uh, we're busy now developing, you know, new activities, expanding on the ones we have already, and, uh, you know, making plans for rolling these out. And what's one of the most exciting things about this project is it's not just a case of us deciding what, what kids and people are interested in and then going out and telling them that. We're actually engaging with the students and the teachers to find out, actually, what do you want us to teach you about? And if we organize an activity like this, you know, is there, are there ways we could do it better? So the kids and the teachers are actually involved in the trial, I suppose, in the development, you know, and, and they're going to be giving us feedback on what works and what doesn't work before we roll it out nationally. So that's very exciting. and. I guess with the project, you know, we don't just want to reach out to kids. We also want to kind of inspire adults a little bit as well. Yeah. So we're we're thinking of kind of creative ways that we might actually, you know, engage with parents and also, you know, older adults in the community. So we're looking at developing a series of walking trails in urban areas because we've lots of fossils in our buildings, in our towns and cities. So we'll develop a series of these. Uh, we'll have a very nice interactive website with a map showing you where you can find fossils that are publicly accessible. So, you know, where you can access free of charge and where fossils are located on public land. Mm -hmm. And uh, also just having some other things slightly left of field, like a photo exhibition that will travel around different cafes and restaurants and shopping centers. So just that fossils start to, I suppose, enter the public consciousness a little bit more. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It's uh, I'm, I'm sure it will be a big success. Um, and actually, one thing you mentioned there was having a website, an interactive website. And one thing I was going to ask you about was because your website for your own research is just so impressive. And one of the things I loved about it was there was one section of it where you 
you know, you say I'm in Leaving Cert, if I'm going into Leaving Cert, what subject should I pick if I want to, you know, go on and study paleontology? What does it look like in college? What would a, you know, a PhD? I think that's so important because I think sometimes it can be so unknown, especially when you're, you know, 15, 16, trying to choose your subjects. And I think, if anything, will inspire young people to pursue the career and then they know what to expect. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I can remember being a teenager and not having a clue what any job was actually like. What would it actually be like to work doing anything? And, uh, you know, I don't know if we do enough of just talking straight to, to teenagers and telling them, right, from Monday to Friday, this is what this job looks like. You know, in terms of the amount of time you, what you're, you're spending on a computer, talking to people in a lab or outdoors or, you know, I think we need to communicate this better to help kids make more informed decisions. Yeah, I, I, so I think that's I think that's really important. And in terms of paleontology, I mean, the, the big the bottom line message here is that you know, all you need, all you need is just a curiosity. You need, you need to have an interest in science and you need to, I suppose, uh, not be afraid to ask questions, not be afraid to look stupid by asking a question. The thing is, you know, I often say to, to students, undergrads, you know, you have them in the classroom and you tell them, right guys, or you ask them, did you understand that? And if nobody puts up a hand, I'll say, I will guarantee that there's something in this lecture that I didn't explain properly, that most of you, most of you are feel a bit confused, but you're afraid to put your hands up. Almost always somebody else has the same question as you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it, if you're not afraid to ask questions, you know, it's not a case of looking stupid. You're asking the question that is on everybody's minds you know so it's a case of yeah just just being interested in science and do you know what the world needs more scientists if paleontology helps get young people interested in science and follow scientific careers and or just follow a career that results in them having an impact in society well then paleontology has done its job Mm -hmm. you know if it's done its job by just encouraging students to choose science for junior cert and leaving cert then it's done its job. If down the road that person becomes a doctor or a teacher or an engineer, you know, then paleontology has made a contribution. As well as that, you know, the other thing that paleontology does, and it's really relevant now with the times we're living in, now that we're emerging from COVID and we can actually start to think about long-term problems again, you know, paleontology is a really important source of evidence for climate change and how life responds to climate change. Mm. Because this isn't, we're currently in a mass extinction. We know that, the sixth mass extinction. Life on Earth has survived five other mass extinctions. You know, the planet has been through some really rough times caused by things like meteorite impacts, volcanic activity, and life has persisted. So if we can, by studying how ecosystems have actually changed and adapted to changes, catastrophic changes in the environment. We can better understand what's going to happen now over the next few hundred and thousand years. And that will actually help us understand what are the critical changes we need to make now? What are the keystone organisms in communities that we need to protect? You know, we can't save everything. I would love to say we could save all of the animals and all of the plants, save all of biodiversity. We can't do that. We don't have the resources. 
money or manpower but maybe there are some keystone organisms some keystone plants keystone animals that are really critical nodes in our food chains in our that we can actually try and protect and try and preserve so if there's one thing that paleontology can do it can help us do those kinds of things you know and and that's where it has a, a real kind of current value nowadays as well in understanding you know, community structure, community change over time, and uh, predicting what's going to happen, and yeah. how can we give life? How can we give life today its best shot, despite what we've done over the last <laughs> few hundred years? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very optimistic. Really, life will find a way, yeah. and I think we have, we have. There's the onus is on us now. You know, to actually figure out how can we fix this mm -hmm. and I think paleontology is one way of doing that absolutely yeah I, I suppose kind of one of my my last questions for you is you know what do you love most about the work that you do and your job and then on the flip side what frustrates you about I suppose academia in general or what would you like to change what do I love most uh looking at fossils <laughs> it's just you know I, I get to spend I get to spend some of my time looking at fossils it's always great. You always see something new. And when you go in the field, you always discover things. Even when if it's something really small and a common fault, you know, you always find new things. So that's always exciting. Aside from that, I really love using the kinds of analytical equipment. I really love using electron microscopes. I really love using x-rays. I really love doing chemistry work and seeing actually what's what's preserved that's hugely exciting and you're you know it always feels like you know you're you're fighting 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 to find the part that's well preserved that'll show you suddenly amazing tissue ultrastructures or amazing chemistry that's super exciting and i really really love that in many ways i i you know i could nearly I could nearly have called myself a, a, a material scientist because of the surface characterization techniques that we use. And, and, you know, I love working with my group, you know, when you have people that are also really interested and where you start to actually link things together and have, you know, some of the conversations, I remember some conversations that I had 20 years ago that were just so exciting and so inspiring. And, you know, you, you form these relationships with your colleagues that are really close and really, it's a really good thing to have yeah. in your life. What do I not like? <laughs> uh, you know, emails, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a fan. I have various filters and things set up, but I still routinely get over 100 emails a day. That takes time, you know, mm. to go through and it takes time away from all the other in more practical aspects of your job so that has to be done uh, there's a lot of paperwork associated with some types of lab work health and safety it's a necessary evil mm -hmm. but i don't particularly enjoy it but it but it, it has to be done the ethical side of the research you know you have to make sure you're doing you know in terms of making sure that you've got all your safety training that you know, you're doing the right thing in terms of the animal research and exporting samples and all of that is done properly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of admin. admin. That's, a que that's an that. answer that I get all the time as admin. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know how we change that, though. Um, Maria, my last question for you is if you weren't a 
paleontologist. Where do you think you would have ended up? What career do you think you might have had? See, that's a very difficult question because, you know, as a 13-year-old, I was kind of like a polymath. I liked sport, science, art, music, <laughs> English, oh, a bit of everything. Um, so I could have gone, you know, uh, yeah, I really liked music. I could have been very happy studying music. I could have gone to art college. I was very, very into art. I was always sketching and drawing and painting. Could have gone and done, I could have been a yoga teacher. Would have been very happy doing that. Um, I love making jam. I, <laughs> you know, if it all goes pear-shaped, I still have jam making as a plan B for my, or even early retirement. I don't know. I love that's that. A lot, that's a long way away yet. Yeah, you know, I, I love uh, nature's bounty and all that. Blackberries, crab apples jam the whole lot up and eat it <laughs> and eat it in the middle of winter and kind of remember the remember this the taste of berries in the summer yeah so i i don't know could have done anything still might do anything i'm not gonna i'm not going to say no yet i love that answer that's a great answer <laughs> um well listen it's been so lovely to talk to you and uh thank you so much for giving me your time today um and yeah, I've really, really enjoyed it. Great. No, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, great. It's always nice to talk about science and it's always nice to, I suppose, talk about your field and, you know, how you've got here. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.